So on that note, who's ready for the word today? I'm excited, and I, I want to tell you something about this message, and I, I should have said this last week, and I just, it just escaped me in the moment, but the message that I'm going to preach to you today was actually the message that I had prepared to preach last week, and I'd spent like two, three weeks, I would say probably 30 hours of study and preparation time going into last weekend, and I was excited and ready to bring that word. And then the Lord on Saturday <laughs> began to turn the direction on me. And I've been doing this long enough now where I, I'm, I feel like I'm tuned in when God is definitely telling me we need to move in a different direction. But whenever you've spent 30 hours preparing for several weeks and it's Saturday afternoon and God says we're going a different direction for tomorrow... Um, the reason I say I wish I would have said it last week is because that kind of is a great illustration in itself for the message topic, which was, we called it Desert Roads, was, this, was the message title, but it was basically about being able to be disrupted out of our agenda to get on God's agenda at times, right? And so that actual message was, was really an illustration of what God was saying to us, I think, as a church uh, and so he changed those directions on me Saturday afternoon last week, and that was where we went last Sunday. And so I talked with the Lord this week, and I helped him to understand <laughs> the amount of time and preparation and study, and he agreed. So we're going to go there today. <laughs> Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John 8. And we will read verses 2 through 11. <sighs> Holy Spirit, begin to move in this place today, Lord God. Feel you right now. Let your word come alive, O oh God. We declare, God, your word is truth. Every man be a liar. But let truth come forth today and penetrate lies that may have been sown in our lives, O oh Lord. Verse 2, early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him and sat down, and he taught them. And then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? And this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And so he continued asking him. He raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Then again he, st then again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, 
neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Let's pray. God, we need you today, Lord. I perceive even now as we approach these verses, this text, this topic today, God, I perceive it's just treading on holy ground. We ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, be our eyes and ears to see and hear, not with the natural man, God, but by your spirit and by revelation. We say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. I ask that you would anoint me today, God, to preach your word, the fire of the Holy Ghost, accuracy, proficiency. God, I'm incapable of such things apart from you. I'm so aware of this. Dependent upon you in every way possible. So I ask you, God, provide what is needed now in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So many of you have heard, I'm sure, this story before, the woman caught in adultery. Um, Start off and just kind of build a little bit of a foundation before we get into the substance of the message. First thing I want to say is these passages are one of the most misused, uh, they are some of the most misused passages by people who think that they understand uh, what, what the message of this is really all about. I hear this misused a lot. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to touch on that today. We're going to really dig into that. But I want to also mention something to you that you may have caught, you may not have caught, but I, I, I really want to discuss it in opening to build a solid foundation. And that's when you read these verses in your Bible, it is likely, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, that these verses are sectioned off. They might be bracketed, they might be footnoted, there may be comments in your Bible that say not included in early manuscripts, okay? And so I want to address that so that you are aware of of what this is all about and why that would be the case. So when you read uh, the earliest manuscripts that we have of Scripture, ancient writings on different types of parchment and things like that, um, the earliest manuscripts that are recorded and that are studied, many of them do not have those passages in there. That's why they're bracketed off or footnoted. And so there are different views from scholars on how to approach these particular passages in the text. So you got to understand there is a, a science called textual criticism that approaches the study of ancient literature to determine the accuracy of such writings. So this is where it gets very interesting, is that what sometimes begins to throw people off and can create a bit of a stumbling block, when you really begin to understand it, it actually ends up doing just the opposite, which builds an even stronger case 
for the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture. So what textual criticism does is it looks at all of the copies of the ancient writings that exist. Now, you probably know this, but if not, we didn't have a printing press until the 1500s, right? That changed the world, (laughs) the printing press making widely available copies of literary work. Before that, for, for centuries, the approach was scribes and people who would record things would continue to write copies and copies and copies of original recordings, and then they would pass those on and they would be held. So what textual criticism does is it looks at all of the oldest copies and the amount of them to determine the accuracy. So this would probably make sense to you that if you have very few copies of something and there are variations in that, it would be difficult to interpret exactly which is correct. It would probably also make sense that if you don't have originals or old ones and you only have later versions of that, then that would present questions as well. Are you with me so far? And so none of the original manuscripts of writings and recordings of ancient scripture, so far as we know, none of the originals actually exist, which is probably good because they'd probably be putting them somewhere and people would probably worship them and they'd become some kind of an idol or something, you know. But these scriptures, um, these manuscripts have been recorded and passed down over the years. And so when you look at some of the ancient writings, the oldest ones that are recorded, this will blow you away. There is a, uh, a composition by Julius Caesar that was actually composed in around 50 B.C. So that's when it was written and produced, right? To date, there are only 10 manuscript copies that are known to exist or be in possession. Of those, the dates of those manuscripts are dated in the 10th century or later. So for hundreds of years, you're missing all of the transfer of that. And only 10 copies are known to exist. There's another composition that was uh, done in 100 AD, known as the Histories and Annals. There are only two manuscripts known to exist. Those are dated from the 9th and 11th century. And another writing that was uh, in the 400s B.C., Eight manuscripts are known to exist. Now, are you ready for this? Ancient manuscripts of the Bible, the earliest ones that we have dating back to about 200 B.C., full sections of the New Testament even in 400 B.C. Guess how many copies or partial copies of manuscripts exist? 5,800. 5,800. And when you examine those scriptures, the, the conclusion through textual criticism, listen to this, is that the accuracy and consistency that would have been held for hundreds and hundreds of years through unknown numbers of scribes and recordings is nothing but miraculous. 
So when we study this, when we use that science of textual criticism, we actually come to a conclusion that we do very much have in our hands the verifiable word of God that has been protected and preserved and presented to us down through the ages. So when we look at some of the earliest manuscripts that exist, these verses in John that I opened up with are not in all of the originals. You see some of them place it in other locations in the gospel. So for because, because of that, it's sectioned off and footnoted. But almost all theologians agree that this event and this story actually did occur with great veracity, the accuracy that is recorded here. And so as we approach it, we do come to it and approach it as text, as scripture. That's, that's the way I approach it. But listen, any variations that are found in the early manuscripts, most of the time, it's like one word or a placement of a word. John 8 is very rare, and then it's a series of verses that are different than other manuscripts, right? But when we come to these and we approach them, none of the variations that we see in any of the earliest manuscripts change anything about Christian doctrine and theology. Hallelujah is right. So I just, I want to say that because, one, you, you got to know, right, I am rigid in my commitment to rightly divide the word of truth. You can't even really imagine how many hours go into just making sure that scripture is properly interpreted and broken down whenever I'm preparing a message. Like, it's just, it's a major, major thing. So when you come to these verses, a preacher is left to do one of two things, knowing that his congregation's Bibles have this thing footnoted. He can either just pass right by it and not mention anything, and then potentially leave his congregation to wrestle with this. Or maybe run into the antagonists in the world who say the scriptures are full of errors and contradictions. Well, I don't want to do that. But he can also avoid it completely and not even tackle it because he doesn't really understand why it is footnoted to begin with or how to explain it to people. So I felt like the approach today was to just take some time and labor a bit in the setup to help you understand that going forward. Some of the students are here today like, dude, we started school this week. I was kind of hoping to ease my way in. Is there going to be homework? Because I feel like there's going to be homework from that. Um, anyway. So what I want to do is go through here, and I want to draw out and kind of focus in on four statements that Jesus makes in here. And, and my notes, they're a bit paraphrased, of course, uh, in the way he says it in the scripture there, but four statements and see what God wants to say to us today. The title of the message is Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So these Pharisees and these uh, law followers, they're very excited because they have caught a woman in the very act of adultery. So they're bringing her out into the street. And what their intention is, is to try to trap Jesus, to get him to stumble. And here's why they're going to try to do that. Because they know that the law of Moses says... A woman caught in the act of adultery, or the man too, by the way, which is kind of fishy right off the bat, that the man's not anywhere to be seen. You know what I'm saying? 
ladies are like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Where is the guy? So they, the scriptures in the law say that both parties would be stoned. So they know if Jesus doesn't condemn this woman to death, then they've probably got him in a situation of disrespecting the law of Moses. But at the same time, if he condemns her to death, then this Jesus who is known for mercy and compassion all of a sudden is now contradicting some of the very teachings that he's well known and popular for. And so the Pharisees, they think they have him. And, uh, and they even say, uh, teacher, in, this, in the law it says this. Don't you love whenever people try to debate scripture with Jesus? I mean, he wrote it, you know, he is, it, he is the inspirer of it, and they're coming to him to try and debate scripture. Never a good idea, by the way. Well, God, it says here, and we're trying to defend a position, but Jesus is masterful, and he actually ends up confounding them. <laughs> First statement that he makes, number one here, is cast the stone, cast the stone. So, he doesn't deny what they're saying, that the law states this woman should be condemned to death. That would be an appropriate action at this time. But what Jesus does is he kind of turns the issue back around and he turns it on them. He says, okay, fair enough. Because they were known, the people who were responsible for catching the perpetrator were normally the ones who would be in the stoning, okay? And so Jesus is like, okay, fair enough. Whoever is without sin, go ahead and let him cast the first stone. And what he does is he actually gets to the real issue, which is the issue in their heart. They're not really zealous for righteousness and justice. They actually have a judgmental and critical spirit. And so what Jesus is doing is he is now going to root out one of the things that he is absolutely opposed to, which is hypocrisy. People acting one way, but living a different way. You with me? And, so, and this is still the case today. People misusing religion and abusing religion, where in reality there's a critical, condemning, judgmental spirit inside of them. And Jesus says, you can't see the speck in your brother's eye until you remove first the log in your own eye. Inward examination before outward assessment. You can't see clearly to make sense of what's going on if you're not willing to look at yourself first. So he's, he is cutting through the double standard here that they're living by. And evidenced by the clearing of the crowd. You notice nobody's left in the street now. Nobody. What does that say to us, church? It says to us the message that we see all throughout the Gospels, which is that every single one of us are in need of mercy. Every one of us. The Bible says none is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We are all born into this world under a death sentence. Mercy 
is where we all find ourselves in the same place. We are in need of it. And by the evidence of the clearing of the street, Jesus makes it known every single person needs what I'm about ready to give this woman. Hmm. So the second statement that he makes to her is, where are they? Where are they? Where are your accusers? They're nowhere around now. I, I love this because Jesus is dealing with them. But then he's also dealing with this woman. And what Jesus has done, think about it, is he has just removed all the people that were standing in between him and her. He cleared the street. He silenced the voices of her accusers. You know, the Bible says about Satan, he is the accuser of the brethren. And he will work relentlessly to accuse us of things that will bring upon us condemnation and guilt that he wants us to live under, that Jesus wants us to live over. Hmm. So, he says, where are they? He clears the street. Once they're out of the way, now he begins to speak to her. It's almost as if he says, I'm going to get the lying, accusing, judgmental, criticizing voices out of the way. Daughter, I'm going to silence all that negativity and all that stuff that's loud in your ears so that you can now hear from me and I can speak to you clearly. Church, I'm just so grateful for this, that Jesus will, if we will allow him to and we will come to him, he has the power and he has the desire to put to rest and silence all the lying voices of accusation that have been spoken over you or that you have spoken over yourself. And once he silences the accusations, then you can begin to hear clearly from him. Mm. He cleared the street. Don't you love that? Clears the street. Let me ask you this question. Are there people in the street right now accusing you? Are you hearing things like you're fake, you're phony, you're damned, you're cursed, you're hopeless, you're a lost cause? Would you allow Jesus to clear the street of all those voices of accusation today so you can hear the truth that actually exists beyond that? Second question would just be this. This is a tough one. Am I the one in the street? Is somebody not able to hear Jesus over me? Have I become so self-righteous that I've developed a critical spirit? Am I quick to condemn others for things that I am willing to permit in my own life? Because that's what hypocrites do. And we don't want to be found... In hypocrisy, Jesus is rooting that out. Statement number three, he says, neither do I. Where are your accusers and who condemns you? And he says, and she says, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I. So now, you got to get what happens right here. Jesus is turning the world upside down. (laughs) He is pardoning her from a death sentence that she's rightly due. And nobody 
has come along and been able to do this ever. But Jesus now has the ability to pardon sin? Yeah. Here's why. Because he is the only one who is qualified to judge. Mm. The Bible says there is only one righteous judge. And this is where it gets to some of the heart of where I want to talk about today is the idea of judgment and the different ways that judgment can be viewed. Jesus is the only one qualified to bring judgment and condemnation upon the, for the sentence that's rightly due. But instead of doing that, instead Jesus offers mercy. And he can do that because he is the, the qualified, righteous judge. He says, you are caught in the act, you've committed the sin, so the stoning is a right sentence by the law. But instead of coming and bringing judgment, Jesus actually comes and brings mercy and grace. Wow. He said some things like this. He said, I've not come to condemn the world, but so the world through me might be saved. So sometimes where people get this wrong is that they think the idea of judgment never happens. But what Jesus is saying is that my visit here now, the first coming of Christ, that visit was not about bringing the judgment that would be due on mankind for sin. He said, I'm coming this time to bring mercy. The second coming of Christ will finalize the age of judgment. So you could say it this way, until Christ returns, we are still under the age of mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. There is a death sentence that's looming over the world. Make no mistake, it's not Jesus is doing. He's the judge who's qualified, but the death sentence that looms over mankind is Satan's doing going all the way back to the fall in the garden. So when Jesus comes along, this is the heart of the Father, and this is the heart he wants his people to have, he comes along and says, a death sentence is due, but I'm not zealous for judgment on you. I'm not zealous for condemnation. In fact, that whole thing exists because of what the accuser did. I'm actually extending a hand of mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And if you'll receive me, and only if you'll receive me, then you will be pardoned from the judgment that's actually due to you. Wow. He is a, ju he is a, uh, a judge, but he is also merciful and compassionate. And so she gets mercy instead of judgment. And I love this, guys, because... Here's the truth and the reality. We don't come to Jesus all cleaned up. We don't come to church all cleaned up. You know how many times I've heard that from people over the years? Yeah, I just got to get, I, I get some things in order. I got to get some things right in my life before I come because they feel like they don't belong, because they don't fit in. 
And every opportunity I get, I was like, you don't understand. We are all at the same place. We are all in the same boat in need of mercy at the foot of the cross. And it is available only in Christ. You don't clean yourself up and get yourself ready before you deserve it. You come in broken and then Jesus begins to restore and fix the things in your life. Uh, You see, what he's doing is he is establishing righteousness in this woman's life on the foundation of grace and mercy, not on works whatsoever. He is is making her right with him, not because she's going to do something to earn it, entirely because he's willing to issue mercy and forgiveness, and no one else can pardon her from this thing. It's turning the world upside down. Who is this guy that can forgive sin? But here's the thing. When Jesus extends mercy and grace, it puts us back into right relationship and right standing with him. And it is only when we are in right standing and right relationship with him that we can ever live a righteous life. Did you get that? Too many people get that backwards. Mercy and grace is not an excuse to sin. It's a motivator to live righteously. We receive mercy and grace before we can ever begin to live obediently to the Lord by His commands. But the accuser would love to block people out of that and live their whole lives thinking they don't deserve the mercy and grace because they've committed the crime. We've all committed the crime. Are you hearing me? It's a lie. It's an illusion. It's deception that the enemy keeps people trapped in sometimes their entire life. And Jesus says, I want you to avoid the judgment that's coming. I want to pardon you from that. But it's only by you taking the hand that I'm extending to you that I can save you from that sentence that's upon your life. That's the message that our lives need to echo, right? Not a condemning, judgmental, self-righteous view, but that there's mercy available. We're not excited about the pending judgment that would come. We think about If that person receives mercy and grace, do you know what the power of a transformed life for Jesus Christ does in the witness of other sinning people? When we see people trapped in sin, I encourage you, look beyond that and think about their life being lived obediently and for Christ because they've received mercy and they've been transformed. Jesus said it like this. He said, freely you've received, freely give. So if we deny mercy and compassion and forgiveness to anyone else just because of the depth of the mess that they're in, I just want you to think about that. We are denying someone the very thing that we have so preciously received. And Jesus is like, you see how he's hitting every angle with this situation that's going on. Mercy and grace is the only way that we find our way into the presence of God. It's the only way. It's because He permits it. In the Bible in 1 Samuel, there's a story where 
the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. And while they had the ark, they began to get hit with plagues and tumors, and they realized, we can't keep this thing. So they send it back to Israel. When they send it back, the first place that it gets is a town called Bet Shemesh. The Bible records in 1 Samuel 6, listen to this, this is, mm, oh, this is powerful. When, when the ark gets there, the, the people of Bet Shemesh begin to rejoice because the ark was known to hold the presence of God, God's presence and dwelling place inside the ark. And the tablets of the law were inside of there. And the ark was shut and sealed. And then there was a, a seat on the top of the ark called the mercy seat where blood would be sprinkled and offered for forgiveness of sin annually. So the ark wouldn't be open. Well, when the ark came into Bet Shemesh, they were excited and they were rejoicing. The presence of God has returned. God is with us again. And it says that they died when they opened the ark. Now, you got to get this. you got to get this. Why did they die when they opened the ark? Remember, presence of God and the law that man can never fulfill inside of there. Mercy seat in between. When we try to uphold the law or step into the presence of a holy God without mercy in between us and Him, there is no way we can stand or approach. <sighs> he is establishing mercy in this woman's life on the basis entirely, or He's establishing righteousness on the basis of grace and mercy. And oh, the relief and the joy and the peace and the lifting of weight that a soul feels when they receive the mercy and grace that's available to them. It's like they just stand up straight and all of the things that have been weighing them down just come off. Mercy every day, church. We need it. We all need it. The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. Are you thankful for that? Because I'm so thankful for that. I needed mercy the day I knew I was a sinner and needed forgiveness. But I'm telling you, I need mercy and grace and forgiveness every single day that I walk in this broken world. And I'm so grateful that I can see his new mercies every day in my life and celebrate and rejoice when I see them. His mercies are new every day. May we never become casual or blindsided to the mercies that are new in our lives every single day. Oh. I remember whenever our uh, fourth child, we were in the hospital, Katie was having our fourth child, Evie, and uh, the doctor that delivered her, this is kind of crazy, um, was the same doctor who delivered me with my mom when she gave birth to me. So we're here, and, and our doctor was her doctor, and he's delivering our fourth child. And so he's been, he's been in the practice for a long time. 
Not, not real long. I mean, I'm not that old. But. So I'll never forget this. We deliver, he delivers Evie, and he hands me her, and afterwards, you know, I'm in there, and he's like, man, isn't it just a miracle? And, and I was like, I mean, I think that. I've only seen this a few times. You've been doing this a long time. And so I asked him, I'm like, Doc, I'm just curious, how many babies have you delivered in your life? He said, mm, I kind of lost count. He's like, I know it's over 8,000. He served in the, in the military, and he delivered a lot of babies when he was in the military as a doctor. Over 8,000 babies. Guys, it left a mark in my life. Because this guy who delivered 8,000 babies, you know how many times he's seen this again and again and again? And he looks to me on number 8,567, and he says, isn't it absolutely a miracle? Oh, I'm just trying to say, may we never get casual or underappreciative of the grace and mercy that God is extending to us every single day. Ah. Oh. So Jesus is the only one qualified to judge. But I want to hit one more thing before we move on to our last point. And I think this is a big one. Is we often hear these passages misused. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people who are blatantly and willingly living in sin would turn these passages around on people who do not condone that kind of sin and behavior, and they would say, you're not supposed to judge. The Bible says, do not judge. This is where the misuse starts to happen, okay? So, there are other verses that we see throughout the New Testament where... The Bible says that as believers, we are to judge matters in this world, matters of life. So how do you reconcile all that? Because it's the same Greek word in Matthew 7 when Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. And he's talking about hypocrisy. He's rooting that out. And then the other verses where it says, as believers, we are to judge matters in this world. In fact, Jesus equips the church to be able to, di to do that, to discern. Here's the deal. As a, the body of Christ, no, we do not look on those who are in sin or anyone and have a condemning, critical, judgmental nature as if we are to take the place of judge but we very much must and are tasked with looking on matters in this world and being able to judge rightly, that is sin, that's not right, and these are the ways that God tells us to live. If you remove the ability to do that, I'm just saying, can you imagine how lost we really are? 
If nobody can look around and call right, right, and wrong, wrong, and we're misusing verses like this to say, well, that's judgment, and you're not supposed to judge. No, sir, no, ma'am, I'm sorry. As a believer, we are equipped to be able to look on what's happening in the world and say, that is right or that is wrong. That doesn't make me judgmental of you. It makes me able to judge sin in this world. And to know where I need to keep myself away from that. Mm. I know it's some deep stuff today. But look, here's the deal. We cannot make any kind of judgment on any kind of behavior or sin or things going on. We cannot do that apart from the word of God. It's the only standard that we are allowed to do that with. Scripture and truth. Are you with me? All right, the last point, statement he makes, is he says to her, now go and sin no more. Now go and sin no more. And we have to, we have to follow all the way through the passages. Because she was caught in the act. It says that. Notice that she does not try to go through a bunch of like verbal gymnastics here. Well, you know, I was just really lonely or you don't understand and, you know, uh, all these things were adding up and this was why I did it or, you know, whatever. She doesn't go through all these verbal gymnastics. Like she's at the feet of the Savior and she owns it. I mean, she owns it. And then Jesus says, okay, I forgive you. Grace, it's here. Mercy, it's here. Now go and sin no more. Let me tell you what he doesn't say, okay? This is how we balance all this out. We can't be judgmental. We can't be critical. We extend mercy and compassion. But that doesn't mean that we just turn a blind eye to sin and pretend like anything goes. Let me tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, okay, now go back to your life and just keep on doing what you want to do and keep sleeping with whoever you want to sleep with and just keep, it doesn't matter because I forgive you and it's grace. He doesn't say that. He says, okay, now go and sin no more. Did the same thing in John chapter 5 with the man at the pool of Bethesda. He says, now go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. You see, guys, I think the evidence of someone who has really, truly received grace and mercy is a changed and transformed life. They don't want to sin anymore because they've been met with amazing grace. It wrecks you. It wrecks you. It changes you. I sometimes wonder when people just go back and just continue to casually do the same things over and over again. I just have to wonder. I don't know. Did they ever really get it? Did they really understand grace? Because I, I think if they did, they, they wouldn't be able to do that. I think the evidence is a changed and transformed life. Not perfection, but our hearts are changed. It's like, say, it's like Jesus is letting her know and, and she's getting it like, Okay, now go and stop committing adultery. Not because you fear getting stoned. 
but because you've been at the feet of the master when you deserved judgment and you received mercy. Now go and sin no more. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. Let me say it a different way. When we see the errors of sin, oh, does it make mercy sweet. When God opens our eyes to how things that are, uh, He's opposed to are destructive in our lives and we need forgiveness and mercy, it creates such a deep well of gratitude and thankfulness in our lives that you don't have to coerce. Listen, you don't have to coerce people into living righteously. Changed and transformed hearts will find their way there. I think that's so much of what we need in our world today. Righteous laws will be written by righteous people. Godly change will be instigated by God-following people. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have to convince people once they've received grace and mercy because their life has been changed from the inside out. And the outward evidence begins to show itself true. James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus is so compassionate. We are living under the age of mercy still and grace. It's like this open invitation for all who are lost and perishing that Jesus says there is still time. There's still time. There's still time. Jesus is so interested in mercy and compassionate, listen, that he's tarrying in his return. I hope you get that. Even in the end, guys, right before Jesus returns, we see great suffering happening to those who are coming to the Lord and being martyred. And yet, even during that time, for a while, Jesus tarries. I hope you see that. He, he is so interested in mercy that he is willing to be patient even while saints are going through great difficulty because evil is still in the land. Because he's interested in more receiving grace and mercy until there's not time anymore. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?